We had a blast Thursday. For all of you who were at Q Commons, uh, we had a simulcast that was amazing. We had so much energy up in the chapel. We were basically filled to the gills and really processed what's going on during this election in a nonpartisan way. Prayed and heard little vignettes of speakers, had a wonderful time. And really, we got one more cool thing going on before the election comes, and that's Eric Mentaxis. He'll be here live Thursday. John Piper once said at a pastor's conference that you need to read Christian biography. When you read the lives of people that have gone before you, it changes your life. So he's going to talk about Bonhoeffer. I've seen it before. It is spellbinding. He's not only a great author, he's a great communicator. He was a humorist for the New York Times. So put that on your calendar. No midweek, no cafe on Wednesday. Cafe opens Thursday at 5 o'clock. Beat the traffic, come have dinner, and... Eric will be here, and I'm sure in the Q&A he'll talk about the election. He has a new book out about the Founding Fathers. So we have a lot of good stuff here at Calvary. Uh, this morning, Psalm 95, if you're open your Bibles there, as John said, we're going to finish our series in the Psalms by talking about what almost all the Psalms talk about, and that's praising God. It's a call to worship, really. I think every once in a while we have to ask ourselves the question, why do we do what we do? All of you should be asking that in your own lives, right? You know, maybe you got a long commute, the kids are in certain schools, you're working hard. Every once in a while, you got to step back and say, why do we do what we do? And so that's a good question for us. You know, we're a church. We give half of the service to singing, music, and the arts, and we need to ask, why do we do that? Now, just reflexively, you might think, well, we do it because we've always done it. That's called tradition. That's never a good reason, Okay. Another one is that people think it's a warm-up for the message. That is a terrible idea. It's not true. Uh, there could be some other ideas, but basically we do what we do because instruction is in the Bible. Look at Psalm 95, a very famous psalm. Begins in verse 1 with a call to worship. Oh, come let us sing to the Lord. That's what we just, all of us just experienced. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms or songs. Now here's why, verse 3. For the Lord is the great God and the great king above all gods. In his hand are the deep places of the earth. The heights of the hills are his. The sea is his, for he made it. And he made the dry land. I just want to stop there for a minute because of all the Psalms we have been reading, and if you just keep reading the Psalms, it's driving home this point that God is the creator. Psalm 8, God made us, you and me, human beings, a little lower than the angels. He made us. We did not evolve. Maybe you get tired of me saying this, but it says here, he made the seas, the dry land, and everything we see. I was listening to you, Ross, this week. He was a child prodigy in cosmology when he was 16 years old. The prominent worldview of the private school he went to in Canada was Buddhism. He never met a true confessing born-again Christian until he was in his 20s. And somewhere in his late 20s, he was studying the great religious books of the world. He wanted to see what they had to say about creation, the cosmos, etc. And most of the books he discarded in, in a half an hour. When he got to Genesis 1 and 2, he was there for two days. He was shocked that everything was according to the scientific method. And as he read the Bible, he couldn't believe the accuracy. He became a Christian. And here's what you, Ross, will tell you. Uh, he will tell you that physicists, cosmologists, even non-Christians will agree that there is an anthropic principle. Here's what that means. That there are thousands of things that go on in the universe every day 
that, that if they were to be removed or they were taken out of sync, this whole thing would fall apart. Now, most people would agree just a, at least 20 have to happen exactly the way they happened, or you and I wouldn't even be here. One secular physicist said it's almost as if the universe knew we were coming. And it knew we were coming because there was a designer, and that designer was God. And it's one of the reasons we worship him. And it's one of the reasons why we love sizzling summer and some of our pilgrimage trips, because we worship him under the stars and, and the creation that he made. So verse 6 says, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord. Again, he's our maker, for he is our God, and we are his people and we're the sheep of his pasture. So Psalm 95 gives you everything you've ever seen in a religious experience. Any service, I don't care the denomination you grew up here at Calvary Chapel, we see bowing, kneeling, sitting, standing. Other Psalms talk about clapping. Psalm 150, the last Psalm, says everything that has breath should praise the Lord. And then it gives all the instruments, right? The harp, the lute, all the instruments that existed back then, the cymbals, the drums. If you have a problem with drums, you have a problem with the Psalms and God, not me, okay? And you look at all this and you say, well, this is all a part of religious worship until you stand back for a second and look at world religions and find out not so much. Now, I already mentioned Buddhism. And I don't know how much you know about Buddhism. It's basically an atheistic religion. Here's why. There is no God. If you're Buddhist, you're trying to get in touch with your inner self to find nirvana or, or find the place of peace or contemplation. Okay? So no corporate worship there. The Hindus have 300 million gods. No, no worship there like we would see here in the Bible. And if you've ever been to a mosque, there is no singing, no instruments. Uh, so many Muslims that become Christians will say, oh my gosh, the first time I walked into a Christian church, it was the music that blew me away. We never expressed ourselves that way. And yet the Bible gives this mandate, and, it, and it's not so much a mandate as a release, that we can worship God in so many profound and different ways. Now here's what I find fascinating. It predates creation, predates human beings. Nehemiah chapter 9 says, you alone are the Lord, once again, can't get away from it, you made heaven, the heaven of heavens, and all their hosts, the earth and everything in it, the seas and all that are in them, and watch this, the host of heaven worships you, the angels. Job said that when God created the world, and we don't know when angels came to be, they're probably between verses 1 and 2 in Genesis 1, it says, when God created the world, the morning stars, the angels sang together. Now, angels are spirits, they don't have vocal cords. I don't know how that works, but there was worship in heaven. Isaiah talks about Satan, Lucifer at the time, who probably was the worship leader in heaven. He talks about how the timbrels and the pipes were built within him, maybe an archangel like Gabriel and Michael. But we see the power of music even before man is created. Now, when man comes on the scene, God does something that's very interesting. He calls this congregation, that's the word Paul used, they were the congregation in the wilderness. He calls them out of Egypt. They're moving to the promised land. They have the Ten Commandments, but God gives Moses a blueprint for a house of worship called the tabernacle. It was portable. Solomon later would build a physical structure. And God says to Moses, choose the sons of Levi. These will be the priests. And uh, they will have a fourfold function 
in the tabernacle and in the temple. And I want you to listen to this. Four things these full-time ministers will do. Number one, they'll attend to the furnishings. If you would walk through the beautiful gate, I know some of you have been in Israel, you would see two of the seven furnishings of the temple. The one was the brazen altar. As soon as you would walk in, it was meant designed this way by God, you would see a place where animals were slaughtered, where the blood would run down. Uh, priests were butchers. They would wear ephods, and they would literally slaughter animals and catch their blood in pitchers. In the holy place, not the holy of holies, the holy place, they would attend to three articles, the table of showbread. There were 12 loaves there, one for every tribe of Israel, and every Sabbath day they would change out those loaves and bring in a new one before the Lord. The altar of incense, twice a day, the morning and evening sacrifice, the priest would come and he put incense upon the altar and the aroma would rise up to God. And then finally, he would trim the wicks and put olive oil in the menorah that there would be constantly be a light there. Now, it was all a picture of the Messiah, Jesus, the light of the world, the bread of life. Uh, if you go back and study that in Exodus, it's fascinating. God said, build it exactly the way I commanded you. The priests were also in charge of reading Scripture. People didn't have the Old Testament. So Scripture would be read in the temple. Prayer was a big part of the service. Isaiah said that the temple was a house of prayer unto all the nations. Jesus, when he ran the money changers out, said, you have made my father's house a house of merchandise. It's a house of prayer. And then one we never talk about, but Second Chronicles really opens our eyes, is that these priests were singers. Now, I didn't trust that you can get the Chronicles real fast. So uh, look up on the screen. This is 2 Chronicles. It says, It came to pass when the priests came out of the most holy place, and the Levites who were the singers, all those of Asaph and Haman and Jeduthun, with their sons and their brethren, stood at the east end of the altar, clothed in white linen, having cymbals, stringed instruments, and harps. We've got nothing on them. This goes way back. And look at this, with them were 120 priests sounding with trumpets. I don't think that was a Presbyterian church. I mean, I think they were getting it on, man. I think it, they were raising the roof, as we like to say. Now watch what happens. Indeed, it came to pass when the trumpeters and singers were as one to make one sound to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord. And when they lifted up their voice with the trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music, and they praised the Lord, saying, For he is good, his mercy endures forever. If you think our songs are too simple, that was a pretty simple song. That the house, the house of the Lord, the temple, was filled with a cloud. Not the cloud we know today, it was a different cloud, the Shekinah glory of God so that the priest could not continue ministering because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled God's house. And no one had ever preached a sermon yet. No one had ever preached a sermon. Is this what we're all after in church, the presence of God? If you ask me, we could strip everything away we do, but this is the one thing, that God's presence would always be in our house. Now, we come to the New Testament, and nothing changes, guys. The New Testament, the church is born, the Holy Spirit, Pentecost. New believers, Jews, and people from every nation under heaven are there, and they're experiencing this unbelievable sense that Jesus has risen from the dead. So what do they do? Well, they were used to going to the temple, and there's always a need to meet in large groups, so they go to the temple, and then they go house to house, meeting in small group, breaking bread, the apostles' doctrine and prayer, 
And one thing has changed. No more sacrifice. Jesus said it's finished. Now they take communion. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. And guess what Acts tells us? The same thing happened. A sense of awe, A-W-E, was felt among everyone. Whether it's the cloud or it's a sense of awe, Craig Rochelle calls it it. I don't know another word for it, but you just know when God's presence is somewhere. Now, it doesn't end there. For thousands of years, this is what the church has done. But the Bible gives us one final picture of a worship scene that's not even on earth. It's in heaven. And it's one of these like interstellar um, uh, inception kind of deals, Revelation chapter 5. You're actually reading about yourself. It's really cool. There's a throne of God. There's 24 elders. That represents the church age, all those who have died. The angels are there. It's one big worship in heaven. And it said, here's the song. It says they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll, to open its seals. Here's why. For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. This isn't Jewish. This isn't any particular people group. This was... The entire world, people call from every culture. If God is God, he's a God of all people. And have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. And all of this answers the question, why do we worship? Because he's worthy. He's worthy of our worship. He created us. He sustains us. He's redeemed us by his blood. This old English word, worship, means we ascribe worth. See, as human beings, you were made to worship. I don't know if you know that. If you think you're self-made, you're not. You were inclined to worship. So if you don't worship God, you know what you do? You go out and you buy a jersey of a person you don't know. Thousands of people in stadiums today will wear jerseys of teams and have a name on the back that's not their own because they were meant to identify with something greater than themselves. You can't get away from it. You are prone to worship. You go to a concert, you are idolizing them, you are screaming. We are prone to it. You can't stop yourself. Somehow we have to ascribe worth some way where, and one of the ways we do it is by singing. Look at verse one again. Come before the Lord singing. Shout. This is a natural expression. Now, I don't have time to go into it, but you know, God gave us vocal cords. And our vocal cords kind of vibrate when raw emotion runs to them, and that's where singing comes from. Singing is almost like a special code among human beings that separates us from everyone else, right? Last time I looked, cows don't sing, dogs don't sing, cats don't sing. I mean, we are unique among all of creation. Someone said it's our collective password. And you know the deal. Singing expresses an idea that, that mere words on a page could never do, right? You know, you're in your shower with a bar of soap, and you're just singing away, and it's just amazing. Or you're, you're in the mall, and you hear a song from the 70s, or if you've ever heard Adele sing, like the power coming through the words is amazing. Now, today, worship has become a cottage industry. You can make a five-figure salary as a worship leader in some churches, uh, there's all kind of performances. And, and, and so worship today has moved to a little bit of what we call performance-based. Now, it's not all bad because I think God believes in excellence, and so do I. 
I believe if you are in children's ministry, you should be inclined to love children and teach children. If you're on the worship team, you probably can carry a tune. We believe in excellence. The priests were excellent in what they had done in the temple. So performance isn't a bad thing. And I don't know how you can judge if something's performance or not because you're judging a heart. Here's what I know. I've been in churches of 10,000 where I was weeping because of the worship. And it was high-end, digital screens, all of that, but I was weeping. And I wept on the Sea of Galilee with 50 people and one guy on a guitar. I've preached in churches where chickens are running around and felt the presence of God. I've been in places where everything was perfect and never experienced God. So it's not styles, it's not, it's, it's not who's on the stage. What it really is, is the heart and the gratitude of the people that are worshiping. There's just an explosion of praise for all that God has done. In other words, I think gratitude drives the performance. For all that he's done, we ascribe worth and value to him. Now, Jesus, when he was on the earth, talked about this. And he talked about it to someone that we would never expect. He didn't go to the temple and talk to the Levites. He talked to a woman of Samaria who was an outcast. She had a question of the ages, still asked today. She said, you know, Samaritans worship this way, Jews worship this way, who's right? You know, people are still asking that today. And Jesus said, the time is coming, John chapter 4, when the true worshipers will worship God in spirit and in truth. God is a spirit. Worship is relational. We are spiritual. Spirit's own body. So worship is a relationship between me and God where I offer him praise and sing. But you can never worship God apart from truth. Never. And you might say, well, Pastor Bob, there's all these religions in the world. Are you telling me they're all wrong? No, I'm telling you you can only worship God according to truth. See, Jesus told the Samaritan woman, look, the time is coming. But, she said, but he said to her, you worship what you don't know. It's very important. Uh, think of the first two men ever born, Cain and Abel. Uh, one day Cain comes and he was a farmer and he brought the produce of his ground and Abel brought an offering of his flocks. And God accepted Abel's offering and not Cain's and Cain was downcast. And God said to Cain, he said, why are you downcast? If you had brought what was required, it would have gone well for you. Now we don't have time to get into that and, and, and all that was going on, but here's what we do know. Cain sincerely, as sincerely as anyone could have ever been, thought he was bringing God his best and the right thing. But he was sincerely wrong. Because God desired sacrifice. See, that was the truth. So, sincerity doesn't mean a lot. And I, how do you know if someone's sincere? Do you have a test for it? There are people that walk across hot coals for gods, bathe in certain rivers, do all kinds of things, but it's all works. The sinless substitute was grace. It was a reminder that there's nothing you can do to appease a holy God. And Jesus said the time is coming when people are going to worship in spirit and truth. He was showing her a day where it was every tribe, every people, every tongue. God's not a respecter of persons. That he would make us a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And Psalm 95 lays down this true response. Kneel before the Lord your God, your maker, for he is the Lord. And, and these wonderful things we do. Now, 
Here is a blessing and curse that I experience. I am in literally hundreds of worship experiences a year, thousands over the years. Two, three services here. Sometimes if I'm teaching during the week, I'm in another worship service. If I go to a conference, that's three days of worship. There are days where I'm in worship services for seven consecutive days. And so it can get familiar and get tiring, right? But I got to tell you, every time I walk into a place of worship, I become a worshiper. I just walk in, and, and I'm telling you, I don't go places where they sing all our songs. I've been in places where hymns are sung, uh, gospel song, black churches. I just enter in. If I don't know the songs, I just stand there, but I raise my hands. I've never had a problem entering in. And the reason I have a problem entering in is because I'm related to God. And when I'm around God's people, there's something going on. Some of you, some of you, there's a barrier in your worship. For some of you, there's, there's something between you and God in a public setting. I don't know what it is. I think you need to, to search your heart. I said at the beginning of the series, one of the keys of the series is you might have to become undignified. Yeah. Like some of you have never raised your hands. Paul told Timothy that men, godly men, should raise holy hands. Godly men. Not nerdy men, godly men. And not like this in an Eagles game, touchdown, yeah, yeah, you know, fist pump your buddy, right? <laughs> Holy hands. I'm a man's man, and I raise my hands to God, not because it's learned behavior or tradition, because it's just an expression. David danced. You want to get in a fight with David, let me tell you something. David was a tough guy. Danced before the Lord, he was undignified. Bible says we should shout, we should sing. I wish there was more shouting here, can't control it. Clap. There's, there's all these expressions. I don't know what is holding you back. Maybe you need a grace explosion. Maybe you need to go into the re recesses of your experience and see all that God has done. See what he's delivered you from, where he's taken you. Some of you, it may be our music. You can download our music. You can buy it in the store. You can sing in the car, practice somewhere else. You know, maybe you're embarrassed. Think about me today. I was standing and singing next to one of our worship one of the girls that sings on worship, but she's not on today. I had to sing next to her today, right? It's just the way it goes. Um, some people say, well, people don't sing on Sunday because, you know, you got to get ready Saturday night. If you're out to all hours of Saturday, you know, doing things on Saturday night, you're never going to worship God on Sunday. You know what? It's beyond Saturday night. It's every day. It's every day. The heart of worship is not styles. It's not performance. It's our hearts. Our hearts always fill with gratitude. Do we look at something every day that God has done that we can thank him for? You know, I was at Longwood Gardens, and they're just about to change over, and they've got all these grapefruit trees now. And I love grapefruit. I love grapefruit juice. I love grapefruits. But I buy them like you do. I go to the store. So when you see it hanging on a tree, it looks fake. And I'm looking at that tree and I'm thinking, God, this is ridiculous. First of all, you made trees. They give us shade, right, from the sun. They give us food. They breathe in what we breathe out, right? So they filter the air. Uh, they protect us. They hide us. We get paper from them. We can make furniture from them. That's just one little thing God designed. And I'm looking at this grapefruit tree. I'm like, God, this is unbelievable. And then I'm reminded what Ken Graves said. He said, there's going to be steak trees in heaven and I can't wait. 
almost every style of worship was born out of excitement, out of joy. For instance, at Calvary Chapel, we have contemporary worship. Do you know contemporary worship started at Calvary Chapel? Not bragging, just telling you it's how it happened. Chuck Smith, in his church on Sunday mornings, they sang hymns. But hippies were coming in barefoot. They, they were barely saved. They didn't know any theology. They would come in. He would preach out of the King James Version of the Bible, which is Old English, like Shakespearean. And they would listen to his messages, and they would go home during the day, and they would write these songs, these folk songs, and Chuck would let them, he would let these guys play these songs in the night service. And if you go back and look at early contemporary Christian worship, uh, like many of you probably heard, as the deer panteth after the waters, right? So go back and analyze that song. You'll see it move from regular English to old English back to regular English, because these hippies had no idea what they were doing. They were just writing what they were hearing, and it was beautiful. And then the guys made an album, and they went up and down the east, west coast selling them out of their cars, and it became Maranatha Music, and it was so refreshing because music is always born out of revival. I just took our staff on a Tuesday to sing the Hillsong movie. Uh, here we are in a theater, our staff, 1 o'clock, watching this movie about a church that started with 10 people that grew to thousands. They wanted to sing their own songs. In the late 1990s, Darlene Zetch was their worship leader, and we sang a lot of those Hillsong songs. But a middle school team they were raising up went on to become Hillsong United. And they've written some of the greatest songs of a generation. And I was so proud because they asked one of the guys, how do you guys avoid celebrity? How do you avoid all these people coming to your concerts? And he said, you know what? Every one of us on this team knows that if we ever, ever cross that line, God will never give us another song. And I thought, what a heart. What a heart. That's the heart of worship. Matt Redman wrote a, uh, a song years ago on the essence of worship when he said, when the music fades and all is stripped away and I simply come longing just to bring something that's of worth that will bless your heart, he said, I'll bring you more than a song for a song in itself is not what you have required. You so search much deeper than that. You're looking, not looking for the way things appear. You're looking into my heart. I'm coming back to the heart of worship. It's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made it. When it's all about you, it's all about you, Jesus. When the heart of worship is lost, the relational motivation is lost. And it's outworking is to criticize bands and worship leaders and the church. And, you know, you know the deal. I do it, you do it. When the heart of worship is lost, the relational motivation to worship God is lost. Oh, I've been in church 20 years. I don't need worship anymore. I go sit by a stream. It says here, come let us sing before the Lord. This is, and this is in the temple. Let us bow down, for he is the Lord. Let us kneel. This is in a congregational setting. And it's not just us. It was Israel. Amos said this. Speaking for God, I hate and despise your religious feasts. God's the one who ordained them. God said, I can't stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll like a river and righteousness like a never-ending stream. 
God loved the songs of Israel. He loves when we shout and sing for joy. He loves choirs. He loves all those things. He said, he said but I don't want you just to mouth words. I want you to walk the walk. And it's real insightful to what is going in in the heart of worship there because it involves all that we are. It involves every thought, every deed, every action, every reaction. That's why we give a whole week to compassion and justice. We're a justice church because we're saying to ourselves, you know what, we live in a world where bad things are happening. What difference can we make? This isn't a country club where we come and sing songs and feel good about ourselves and, you know, say hi to people that we know and look like us. This is a church where we roll up our sleeves and say, how can we make a difference? And I've been so proud to go and serve with so many of you in all our venues from New York to Washington to inner city Philadelphia. We will and always be a serving church. And we will always be the hands and feet of Jesus because justice needs to roll. And we need to love mercy and we need to love justice and walk humbly with our God. And when we come in this place, we ascribe to him the worth and the value. And to me, the heart of worship this call to worship, is Romans 12, where the Hebrew New Testament writer says, God's not looking for dead sacrifices anymore. Christ fulfilled that. But Romans 12 says now God's looking for living sacrifices. He's looking for living human beings to get up on a worship altar and say, God, all that I am is for all that you are. And I want to ascribe you that glory. I think one of the great tests of the heart of worship and the heart of obedience, is if certain things were taken away from us, what would it do to us? What if the NFL was taken away? It'd be a bummer, right? Would your life crumble? What if golf was taken away, or movies, or something you enjoy? Would your life crumble? But if God was taken away, we crumble. And so the heart of worship is, there's no temple anymore. There's no priests anymore. There's no go-between between you and God. Now we bring the temple. We now are the fit habitation of the Holy Spirit. We bring the temple to this place. We get up on an altar and we say, God, here we are. Take my life. Do with it as you please. We are here to worship you. We are living sacrifices. Now, I want to say two more things. Worship, because I've been around it so much, and again, I don't have any musical ability, but I'm a pastor that loves worship. Worship is transformational. It is not a warm-up to the message. Transformational. Uh, I've had the experience, people tell me all the time, oh my gosh, way before you ever talk, God dealt with me. The Holy Spirit came over me. I was healed. I hear that so many times over and over again. Uh, one person asked, why did Christ come? I love this answer that he might make worshipers out of rebels, that he might restore us to the place we were first created. Worshipers out of rebels. That's Calvary Chapel. You're sitting next to a rebel. They look nice today. They probably got perfume or cologne on. They look really good. I know all their stories. I know you, some of you are sitting next to doctors and you don't know it, plumbers and you don't know it, housewives, you don't know it. You're sitting next to former drug addicts and people that were womanizing. I mean, you are sitting next to rebels. But that's the gospel. God takes rebels and he makes them worshipers. And there is no program in the world that can do that. 
That's the work of God and the word of God and his spirit. And it is a beautiful thing to watch. Worship is transformational. Worship is evangelistic. The Bible says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves as some do, but we should gather more and more as we see the day drawing near. I shared this with you before. We're in a church age where 40% of the church is missing every Sunday. There are people that stay home and listen to the internet. But you know what a worship experience is? You know how evangelistic it is? There are people, you have to think back to your own life, who walk into something like this for the first time and say, oh my gosh, what's going on here? And they can only say that because they see you worshiping. And they think, oh my gosh, all these people can't be wrong. And they, and they feel the spirit and the singing and it moves them. And you have no idea, but just your presence here and your worship is drawing people. Let me say one final thing. My worst nightmare would be a church without the arts. A church where there was low emphasis on music, video, arts, artistic expression. See this wall behind me? Most of you know we do set designs here, right? I love our set designs because I love the process. The people that get together, they brainstorm. This um, backdrop was from someone's old Bible that came from Germany. If you go up there, it's actually real old, you know, English and and they had a brainstorm, and we made copies of it. And then a bunch of us came in here with glue. They made me do all the high ones there. So that's my work. <laughs> and uh, my worst nightmare would be in a church where we just never did anything like this, never took risks. The list of Christians involved in the arts and human expression through history is endless. If you look at the Western and the Eastern world, Bach, Van Eck, Vermeer, Handel, Mendelssohn, Haydn, Shakespeare, almost all the artists of the Italian Renaissance. You go through and you look at them, there's hundreds and hundreds of artists. And they, they may not have all been sincere Christians, but they had a Christian worldview. In the arts and the media of their day and age, the vehicle of human expression, whether it was sculpting or the arts or music, and the root of all their ideas was foundational. It's what, it was what society was being built on. Culture and devils, the arts and the media are truly the marketplace of ideas. Christians for many centuries dominated creative expression. They embraced it, enjoyed it, cared for it, exalted in it as a manifestation of God's gift to men. It is no coincidence that they dominated the culture in which they lived. And there was actually a Christian consensus. Wow, that's powerful. And it goes all the way back to the tabernacle when God said, take Bezalel and take, take these craftsmen. They're going to design this place and singers are going to sing. And it was the dominant expression and it was through the centuries and we're on the shoulders of these people. In some ways, we pass this on to a dominant culture. Many of the singers today came out of black churches. Rock and roll, many believe, came out of the church world. And you start to look at this and you think, oh my gosh, we have lost our way. And the Psalms tell us that this expression is who we are. And really what we're doing is we're ascribing back to God all that he is and all that he desires. Even in the Psalms of lament, they move towards hope at the end because all the Psalms are teaching us that even though life is hard and difficult and people are marginalized and terrible things are happening, 
We are encouraged to see the world as God sees it through his hesed, H-E-S-E-D, Hebrew word, his kindness. And it talks about the world as it may be one day, maybe not through what we do, maybe when Christ comes again. But as long as we have breath, the Bible says, we praise the Lord. Because he is our breath, he is our life. So we've planned the back end of the service as a chance for you to enter in, to listen, to participate, to express yourself, that we might be a worshiping community. Shem?
Let's sing you beautiful, Lord. Of the 